Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post, yet still very racial, America. You could call us all of that, or you could just call us about race. I'm Tanner Colby, and here with me in the Panoply Studios in New York is my co-host Raquel Cepeda. Hello, Raquel. Hi. And live via iPhone from Los Angeles is the globe-trotting Baratunde Thurston. Hello, Baratunde. From the West Side. Hello. Hello. So, on this week's show, one of your hosts provokes a racial incident, the efficacy of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the racial politics of the car-sharing service Uber. After that, we'll wrap things up with our famous segment, Yo, Check This Out, our tips and recommendations. And before we get to the topics, we'll just check in with everybody and see how they are doing. Raquel, what's going on with you? Well, now that you're here, everything is fine. Thank you. A-OK. That's lovely. Other I'm so that, glad. Not much. All right. Good, good. I miss you, though, Baratunde. I wish you were here live and direct. I'll be back in New York City soon. Miss you, Raquel. Thank you oh, for that. Cool. Mr. Thurston, uh, what's going on life, with you? Yeah, uh, I'm going to keep it nice and general. I'm I'm doing good. My eyes are, are working better than ever. Uh, I know I, I used to provide updates on my, my laser eye surgery, and I can happily report that my vision is pretty much 2020 now. There's an occasional right. uh, blurring at, at a great distance. I still have to put drops in to stay, keep my eyes fresh, uh, keep my vision so clean. But uh, the world is looking good uh, more than it ever has before, so... Excellent. That's about uh, right what's up with me. Yeah. So I've had an interesting few weeks since I've been gone. I'll just try and fill you all in as quickly as possible. Um, so we all know my high school emerged at the center of the Confederate flag debate. Uh, Vestavia Falls. Vestavia yeah. Hills. There are no waterfalls. Oh, that should be falls. It should, it should be, be falls, falls, but it's not. <laughs> um, so my high school uh, emerged at the center of this Confederate flag debate. And then first day I went on vacation. I went up to the Berkshires with my family for a little break. First day we're up there. Tuned in listeners will know. Before I lived in Alabama, I grew up in southern Louisiana in Lafayette. And the shooting at the Amy Schumer screening of Trainwreck was at the movie theater that I grew up going to. Wow. So how's that for uh, weird coincidences? And then, after a lovely vacation, uh, we came home to find our apartment broken into. What? Door splintered open. All the drawers rifled through. Shit everywhere. uh, Dude. Wife's computer and jewelry gone. Um, oh my. They took nothing of mine. I actually, it turns out, own nothing of value to a burglar. <laughs> um, cops came. No one died. Uh, of course not. <laughs> of course not, because when it's protecting property in a white neighborhood, it all goes to plan. <laughs> and then after that, uh, earlier this week, I had a new book come out, one of the many that I've been working on. Uh, I ghost wrote it, but it's no secret. It is a biography of Luther Campbell called The Book of Luke, the lead yes. singer of Two Live Crew. Congrats. Um, obviously, there's a lot about Two Live Crew in there and the crazy days uh, of uh, all the booty-shaking videos, and there's there's plenty of that, but it's really about uh, Luther Campbell as an entrepreneur, the first hip-hop, uh, first black-owned hip-hop label in the country, and how we sort of built the template and the roadmap for Southern hip-hop and a lot of black entrepreneurs in the business who came after him. It's about his work as a community leader in Liberty City, how he took his political capital from from being a celebrity and really plowed it into uh, his youth football program and his youth community program and has just sent dozens of kids to college and put a couple of guys in local government. It's really amazing. This is the book Bobby Seale gave it a great blurb. 
Um, this was the one. This was the one. He called it a passionate, a passionate call to action for everyone among us to embrace community for constitutional, democratic, civil human rights and never give up on the fight for justice. This is an incredibly engaging read and impressively profound in its message to fight the oppressive power. And it was written by a member of the oppressive power. I'm very proud to say that um, we got Mr. Shields' endorsement. But that's not the interesting yeah. part of, of what I wanted to, to bring up. So... I provoked a minor racial incident the other day. <laughs> what does that? What does that <laughs> what mean? What did you do now, Tanner? And I wanted to bring it up because I think it illustrates something that's it's important <laughs> about everything that we discuss here. So I was at uh, a coffee shop in the Time Warner Center having coffee with a friend of mine, and there was a person behind me playing mm-hmm. a, a like a YouTube video, like a music video, on their iPhone very very loudly. Yeah. So I turn around to say. Excuse me, could you please not play the music out loud in the, in the restaurant? It is only when I turn around to say this do I realize that it's two black women at the table. <laughs> and, and so they were like black lives matter, shut up. Basically, so what so <laughs> so the woman the woman who's playing the video on her phone gets very upset, very defensive, yeah. and she says, you know, I'm the CEO of a music company, and this is a business meeting, and I'm playing this, you know, record because we're discussing uh, the work of this artist, and so on and so forth. And I was like, look, I, I understand. That's fine. Uh, your business mm-hmm. is, is whatever it is. Still, you know, if you need to play loud audio or video, you know, please don't do We're trying to have a conversation over at this table. It's very loud, and generally, you know, it's rude to play videos out loud yeah. in a restaurant. So... So she starts getting really, really angry, and she says, don't you stereotype us. And there it is, right? She thinks <laughs> yeah. we're in this, this fancy coffee shop in the Time Warner Center, me and my friend, a couple of white bros at our table. Her take on the issue is, here's these white guys in this sort of ritzy white space, and they're trying to police my behavior because they think yeah. black people are loud, black people are unruly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, what she doesn't know is I didn't know she was black when I turned around, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is a classic example of, you know, I know white people always say, oh, it's not really about race. It's really not about race. Well, in this case, it really wasn't, right? Because I didn't know until I turned around. What happened here is this woman, given her lifetime of experience, naturally assumes that she is being put under attack because of her race, right? She's so used to white people <laughs> controlling her behavior, telling her what to do, and I forgot one part of the story is that after sort of the situation sort of diffused itself, we went back to our conversation. She spent like the next five minutes muttering quite deliberately, fucking tired of white people from her table <laughs> so that we could hear it at yeah. our table. And it was funny because my friend who I was talking to, like he after, after it was over, he sort of like he's, he, he had to resist the urge to say, do you know which white person you're talking to? Because like you're talking to like one of the like five white guys in New York who probably wouldn't <laughs> say this to you because of your race. Um, and so, you know, I'm coming from the point of view of like you shouldn't be allowed in, in a coffee shop. Right. You should. If I'm in a coffee shop and I'm right. playing a video, if I like open a browser window and a video starts playing and I'm not expecting, I hit the mute button as fast as I can. Like, I'm really like, oh, God, that's very rude of me. And here she is playing this video. And so from my point of view, I'm right. You shouldn't play a music video in a, in a restaurant. And from her point of view, she's right, because right. white people are always trying to monitor and control how black people act in public. So who I, I put it to the to the committee yeah. to my co-discussants hmm. who was right? Yeah. Well, if we were to approach these these uh, women the way that white so many white people want us to approach them, I would say you need to exercise more patience. Well, I was patient. I waited coddle. like three or four minutes for the for the video to be over, and I said, "Excuse me." I was like, "Excuse me." Could you? I didn't turn around and say, "You can't play that in here." I said, "Excuse me." Could you please not play that? Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe I had a tone in my voice. I'm sure I was a little impatient. Here's with here's it. I I I think you're. <laughs> this is a this is a great situation. It was not I'll, a great I'll situation. I'll try to be shorter instead of building all this. No, no, it's 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 great because it's great for me right now, <laughs> and that makes it a great situation. It's great for us and for, and for this show. Right. There are definitely people of color who use the existence of racism to, as a as a shield for just being shitty. This sounds like one of those cases. I wasn't there, but I've, I've had right. friends who've used it. I'm sure I've done it myself, where you're just like, I'm being incompetent or rude right now, 
but racism. Right. So right. there you go. It's like a get out of social norms free card. Right. Where you're like, yeah, me and my friends are being obnoxious on the subway. And it's not, we're not being obnoxious because we're black. We're being obnoxious because we're just obnoxious people. But if a white person criticizes us in this moment, we can keep doing what we're doing because they're going to feel terrible when we call them a racist for calling us on being like rude. And I think what you got here is, you know, you're being really generous with these people. Like, yeah, her life experience and blah, blah, blah. That's all true. But look, it's just rude. It's just mm-hmm. rude to be in a public place blasting something. It's, it's why they say you use headsets on the buses and trains. And yeah. it's just common sense. And if she is truly a music executive, then she's been through the ringer a bunch of times. It's not like she just landed. She's from a whole nother culture where everybody plays right. their YouTube videos out loud at the coffee shop. Right. right. <laughs> like she's from this world very much so. She's at the Time Warner Center. So mm-hmm. she was just being uh, selfish. And you played right into it. You were perfect. Because you're like, excuse me, um, could you please? And it's like, got him. Watch this girl. And yeah, so her life could have been horrible. A lot of bad things could have happened to her. She could have uh, had a bad day. But in this day. moment, right. none of the, Yeah, th- this is just her uh, using, this is literally playing, oh, not literally, but it is as close to playing the race card as you can. Because it was like her get out of uh, being a, a, a bad person free card. Right, uh, like like in a monopoly or something. Right, As, yeah. uh, I think, I and think you, you didn't know. You had, no, you I didn't know the irony. To me, the irony yeah. of all of it was that you know she thought I said so, or she claimed I said something to her because she was black. When the truth is, had I realized yeah. she was black before I turned around. I probably might not have said anything because, like, the nervous white person was like, "I don't want to pull a Radio Rahim in the Time Warner Center." <laughs> yeah, you would have, you would have censored yourself. I would have yeah. censored myself and yeah. said, "All right, no, well, you know, I'm just going to let this fly." Like the guys on the subway, there's the phenomenon on the, on the subway of the young black guy who's either blasting his music or even he's got his headphones on, he's like rapping on out loud, rapping yeah. along out loud, and right. almost daring you to like say something to him because he's asserting his, you know, presence in that space. Um, and of course, no one on the subway ever says anything, right? Actually, that happened to me yesterday. And it's yeah. anything because I was like, he's young. You know, he's like rapping uh, music, but he's also every single word is like the N word and like bitch and this and that. And I see all the white people staring at him mm-hmm. and just and I can see what they're thinking. Right. And I wanted to say something and I just didn't. Cause I'm like, you know what? He needs to, he needs to have his space. Right. Even if his space is, you know, extremely violent um, as far as, you know, lyrically, lyrical content goes right. him, to himself. And also to the people and to the women around them. Should, so I was like wrestling, 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 wrestling. So I understand where you're coming from, yeah. Right. And sometimes, you know, you're not going to get through to people. It's just not. Because right. you don't know, like Baratunde said, what kind of day they're having. Right. I remember when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, when they were running against each other, I went to vote, right? Right. And some woman, some a Dominican woman said to me, you're an anti-feminist if you don't vote for Hillary. You hate all women. And I was like, okay, well, if you don't mm-hmm. vote for Barack Obama, you're a self-loathing Dominican. So like some, you know, but I had a really nice. bad and that's, day. That's a great racial conversation. But you know what? I had a yeah. really, I had a really annoying day and I didn't want to be called out for something stupid like that. We don't even know who I was voting for, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but you know, whatever it happens, it happens. Yeah. As, and that's what happens also living in New York yeah. city. It's congested. It's high tense tension. Right. You know, the political landscape is kind of like, it's people are tired well, of, and, of, what, of, and of, what happens, what, what, what can happen in a situation like the one you just described Tanner is when. You know, if, if you had been a police officer and, you know, chose to exercise your state power to, like, arrest, beat this person down, like, that's, that's where, you know, black people being rude or people of color being rude has a higher price associated with it. Oh, yeah. But that's not what happened here. I think this is the case of, like, a person of color kind of exploiting, you know, that, that knowledge that there's a sensitivity around race, especially in the air right now. And it's like, I'm going to use this to just be selfish, in a, in a public space and uh thank you for doing that or she's just being a human being yeah, yeah I think and she responding to what's in the zeitgeist which is a lot of tension yeah i mm-hmm. think maybe i think it was more that she just wasn't thinking and then that was her gut reaction she just went there right away because listen i'll be i'll be honest me and my friend sitting in the time warner center in our like khakis and, and dress shirts we're pretty white and so you drinking paps <laughs> <laughs> So I could see that <laughs> as a coffee shop. The setting in particular uh, yeah. could lent itself to that. But of course now she I, will go home and great. continue to say she's tired of white people. And if I were someone else 
just an average white person who's like, ah, playing the race card, blah, blah, blah. I would go home and, like, you know, with a lower opinion mm-hmm. of black people, and we would just go on and grind on and on and on. You know what you should have done? Hmm. I think you should have asked her, like, do you think I'm telling you, you – I mean, I heard you say you're tired of white people, and you said it within, you know, my earshot, so do you want to talk about this? Like, I would have just engaged in a conversation. The only way that that would have really worked out is if the coffee shop was a Starbucks, because then you exactly. could have like, talked about like, race yeah. together, yeah. together. Yeah. And that would have been the perfect button. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for having that experience, Tanner. That was a great opening. There you go. So let's go out and provoke some more racial incidents so that we can discuss them on the show. So moving on, Black Lives Matter, the social media movement that started in the wake of the Trayvon Martin killing and really exploded last year with the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, has become sort of the dominant venue uh, for this discussion of black lives and policing and the death of so many people of color at the hands of police. Recently in Seattle, two Black Lives Matter activists, Marissa Johnson and Mara Williford, interrupted a Bernie Sanders rally in Seattle to, to take over the podium there. Uh, at the Netroots convention a couple weeks ago in Phoenix, same thing happened to a Bernie Sanders event and a Martin O'Malley event. And as Black Lives Matter becomes one of the dominant forces in the rising presidential campaign. Everyone's talking about the efficacy of it. Is it doing the right things? Is it moving in the right direction? Where is it a year after it really kicked off uh, after Ferguson? And what's going to happen next? Uh, We'll get to the Bernie Sanders moment in a minute. But first, I want to ask you, Barrett Sunday, what Mm -hmm. we see with Black Lives Matter, it's been a boon in the sense of it is this broad-based, democratic, social media-driven movement that circumvents the old Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton model of protest. But that comes with the cons of uh, not having any coherent mes- uh, message discipline, not really necessarily having a definite end game. As someone who deals a lot with social media and technology and has this ear to ground on this, do the pros outweigh the cons here? And what are the cons and, and how are we going to fix them to make this uh, movement the best, po- best that it can be? I think Danielle Belton over at The Root wrote maybe the best overall comprehensive piece uh, about this, at least recently, and it was in a piece about the five biggest challenges facing Black Lives Matter. I think the pros outweigh the cons. Uh, That's my short answer to your question. I think the cons are largely cases of inconvenience to others, which is actually also a pro. I think it's the, the idea that there's lack of message discipline or lack of coherence. It's actually pretty coherent and i think if you look at you know occupy which is much more dispersed than than this movement is uh what you have is something powered by young people you got something powered largely by women that you have a movement that's very technologically savvy uh and and young the fact that it's not just the social media thing that it has become uh not a virtual social media but a physical social media people are actually from the screen to the streets is it kind of undermines a lot of the fears slash criticisms of clicktivism and hashtag activism and the idea that it's so easy to create a Facebook group, but so hard to have an actual kind of revolution. So I think the persistence of Black Lives Matter in shutting down highways and interrupting political moments is a testament to the strength and it's a pro much more than it is a con. So yeah, there's there's stuff to be worked out. There's not total agreement. There never is. There's disagreement in the within the gun rights community, uh, within the NRA folks who just are obstinate versus those who have an idea of like reasonable and sane uh, laws around possession and, and use of firearms. And uh, this is a much better cause th- than that one. So I'm not too alarmed or, or worried about these latest uh, things that are happening. I think this is one of the most inclusive and uh, truly national movements that we've seen in a really long time. Well, specifically to the event in Seattle, what's your reaction to yeah. that? Well, I don't see it as much of a disruption as they interrupted and they interrupted to urge Bernie Sanders in that case in Seattle to present a platform on racial justice. He hasn't been talking about it. He's been very quiet about it. And yeah, I mean, and it worked because he published something and he published something that was pretty to me as far as from what I'm reading so far, something that I'm really interested in knowing more about much better than Martin O'Malley, who Jose Antonio Vargas called the godfather of mass incarceration. You know, he didn't even talk really about race on his, you know, his site. Bernie Sanders is kind of delivering, yes, the one liners, but 
at the same time now he's rep- he's presenting more of a you know of a of a less rhetorical a la Hillary Clinton kind of plan than than Clinton or O'Malley has so far or anybody in the Republican um, was running for Republican for the Republican seat. So I think that what they're doing does work. And I feel like, you know, they're not it's not the first time that people have been uh, interrupted. Like, for example, in Netroots, I know that, you know, the LGBT activists have interrupted in the past. Climate change activists have interrupted in the past. But I think that what's making so many people uncomfortable, especially the white progressives that are riding or dying, you know, ride or die for Bernie Sanders, is the fact that, you know, these women, by virtue of being black women, are decolonizing the political landscape. And that, to me, is what just sends chills up and down my arms, because I think we need to see more of that. How are they decolonizing? By being black women, by being black women and putting themselves in a position but of power. But there are other black women in politics who aren't taking over the podium and doing what they did. Yeah, but they, this is a new generation. They are getting answers. They're showing that they have results. For me, I didn't find it. I didn't think it was disrespectful at all. I think they just. Oh, or, yeah. I think revolu- I think when you. I think that they're acting from a place of deep, deep love for their community, for their, for their bodies, for the bodies of their brothers and sisters, for people of color, for community, for us to to get into a better place, and for the demilitarization of of the police department, et cetera, et cetera. So they're just you know they're doing what activists have done in the past here's what i you know this is one of those conversations where i think like everybody's talking past each other and like both sides are making like the wrong arguments which is that the people defending these women in seattle for what they did are saying oh we should be disruptive we should be able to do whatever we want we're just going to be here to make you uncomfortable the woman uh, i think it was uh, marissa johnson uh, gave the interview on this week in blackness which was like i don't give a fuck what white people think and I'm just doing going to do my own thing and, and do whatever I want. And then on the other side, you have people like Jonathan Chait, the New Yorker, and, and Larry Wilmore, you, you, but the black manners matter kind of thing. is like, oh, you need to be more polite and respectful in your protest, which doesn't make any sense. The critique of what happened in Seattle is not that protesters should be polite. In fact, you, know, you should be mm-hmm. as disruptive as you want as long as there is a point to it. Right. Right. Which is that. And this reminds me it's sort of a callback to one of the controversies that I wanted to discuss, but weren't on the air yet, which is about the whole thing about Martin Luther King and LBJ and Selma, which is you had all of these uh, progressives from that era wanting to give LBJ all the credit for the Voting Rights Act and all the filmmakers, you know, saying, no, it was really Martin Luther King and these grassroots activists who deserve responsibility for it. And the reason why you had all these white liberals and progressives all eager to give LBJ credit was because what Martin Luther King did was he didn't publicly humiliate and shame and clown LBJ. He forced him very deliberately and concertedly, and not just Martin Luther King, but all the other uh, people on the ground in Selma. They maneuvered LBJ into a position where he had to do something, but he could also come out as the good guy. And claim mm-hmm. vic- he could claim a victory, and so Would I don't you think say maybe he they, he was coddled a little bit, right? To, well, to maneuvered. Side. I would say po- yeah. I would say strongly but politely maneuvered into a position yeah. where he had to act, but he could also claim a victory. And so I don't think Martin Luther King, fifty years later, would care that people are giving LBJ credit for the Voting Rights Act over what was in Selma. I think Martin Luther King would just would like us to continue to have a Voting Rights Act, which we really don't. But so, so we're taking we're talking about a whole different generation. Well, but 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 th- and that's but that's the point. We're talking about the efficacy of what's going on in the new generation. And when I see what happened on the stage in Seattle, I mean they just got up there. Bernie Sanders looked like my grandfather trying to work the remote of the cable TV. <laughs> it was just like he just was befuddled and couldn't even handle yeah. two twenty-four-year-old kids on his stage. Like, what's going on here? They succeeded in making him look so non-presidential. That's right. That, and now that he, yeah, well, he's come out with this statement. Yeah, it looks like he was backed into it. He was publicly clowned, and now he's doing a rear he guard. Clowned. He, you know, doing this rear guard. Oh, I better put out something as opposed to, hey, I'm going to Bernie Sanders. I'm going to put you in the position where you can be the good guy and do mm-hmm. something. There is, there is a saying that's one of my favorite sayings in the world: is that there is no limit to what you can accomplish if you're willing to give someone else the credit. And the question is, what we saw in Seattle, is that doing the right kind of maneuvering and positioning to get people in power on your side? Or because of this decentralized 
nature of the Black Lives Movement, can Black Lives do something like Selma in the long run in, uh, from a policy point of view? And I think the question is, do we, does Selma, is Selma the model for success and for the next step in this movement? What I see happening is, is a lot of frustration. There's an awakening amongst white people that the mythology of a super awesome America that has just only gotten better since the end of slavery is crashing down. And it's like, oh, wait, we don't get to take credit for all the, the good non-bad things that we're, we're not doing so much anymore. Like we're less horrible than we used to be and therefore we're good and that's not enough. And it turns out that cops are still killing black folks and that healthcare outcomes are terrible and that economic outcomes are terrible. So what was it all for? And maybe we're not as dope as we thought we were. And then for black folk, like the ones who took the stage here, I think there's just, there's a deep questioning of the long-term value of these legislative victories. Great, we got a Voting Rights Act, but we can't vote because the Republicans are like making it very, very hard to do that. Oh, we, we got a equal rights amendments and all kinds of clauses, but we're still dying in, in the street. And so the premise of working with a Bernie Sanders to get a, a good law on the books as progress has been undermined by the persistence of racism. But if, 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 you won't, if, you don't, if you're not after Bernie Sanders to and, pass legislation, what are you after him for? He's the president. I think That's his Bernie joke. Sanders is a trending to topic. No, no. I think Bernie Sanders is a trending topic right now. He is, you know, in the parlance of social media, he's like hot. And they were riding on that hashtag. Whoever else is turning out 28,000 people would have gotten like that same heat. I think it's a little bit less about Bernie is a major problem and is all that is wrong. And if we attack Bernie's stage time, we're going to win and improve things for, for black folk in America. It's like all the cameras are here. All these people are here. And he is a center of attention. He also has like the lightest security relative to someone like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, hello. So, and, and to your point, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do with this moment. I think it is, a, it is an odd indictment when you say oh, who looks presidential and like, is this a protest candidacy or a real thing? Like, what do you want your president to do when, when faced with this? You want them to hand over the mic every single time to whoever has a political point to make? Probably not. So I think right. it's, you know, it is independent of their political aims and our political aims in many ways. I think it's not a good look for Bernie to keep getting steamrolled. And he's going to have to come up with a new way to address this. If you, know what, well, you know what? He, he, he needs a comprehensive criminal justice platform. He's also, they're putting him in a position where he's going to have to make a sister soldier moment where he's going to have to like stand up and Why say- not? Why not just wait? I mean, he didn't have to leave Seattle. He doesn't have to see. He didn't have to. He could have sat down he, while they were talking. He could have waited for them to, to be done, taken, a, you know, put his chair or, or step up to the podium and just address them and say, listen, I'm or just be honest. You know, we want honesty. We don't want rhetoric. We want honesty. So I don't know what to do right now. I'm working on a plan. Actually, it's funny that right, you're that's disrupting not presidential. Me. To say I don't know what to do right now. I don't have a plan is not <laughs> it presidential. Is nothing, it's not. Yeah. So what is presidential? Calling it like telling people we got to build this border and kill all these rapists, Mexican illegals. Like no. what? What it was? You know? You know like, honestly, I think though, it's honestly, a new. It's a new. I know he come. What? I know what you're gonna say, but no, no, you it. don't know what I'm gonna say. Which is that? Yeah, like the the incendiary Republicans who are like denouncing immigration and everything else is horrible, and they're fear mongering and everything else. But the reality is, is that people respond to someone with a definitive point of view and the confidence to to stand by it. That's exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> but that's what voters respond well, we to. Never prove but that. at the same, we can never prove I know that. we can never prove that. Okay, but you know, I mean, I think he didn't have to leave. He could have just. I, it was a missed opportunity because he is a rock star. He is, you know, people are hashtagging, feeling the burn. He has a ride or die contingency of people who back him up, and I feel like he actually is going to get it before a lot of his followers. Hillary Clinton draws in like five thousand people at her rallies and Bernie Sanders is drawing 19,000, 27,000, you know? So mm -hmm. I think it's just, it could have been anybody. They're not, I don't think they were attacking or trying to attack Bernie. They just want the people who are running to present a clear criminal justice and racial justice platform. My position on this particular Seattle moment has changed because when I first saw it, I was like, I don't know if that's helpful. And I think there, there was something in the comment to the crowd, something about white, liberal racism or white supremacy yeah they called or, everyone there racist and that's like to, to to the point of like what do you actually want that's not useful right like the, right. like massively insulting people who in who are likely to be on your side if they're not already on your side 
is not helpful. It's understandable if you're that upset and if you're that frustrated with the lack of progress and change, but it's objectively like pretty unhelpful to just call a crowd of thousands of people who want a socialist president racist. <laughs> so, so on that point, I'm just like, yeah, not, not the best, uh, but I have a little more like forgiveness in it because I think that this movement is still figuring itself out and finding its way forward. And I also don't think undermining Bernie Sanders at this rally is going to threaten the true opportunity for, for change that people uh, actually want. I think the deeper challenge is what do we actually want and what's the best way to fight for it? Because we are so uncertain that the tactics of the past and the victories of the past have any real long-term value uh, and getting more black people into office or more black cops. Like that's not the answer and passing really great laws. is like, they're just little tiny pieces of the answer, but there's some other change that this movement is bumping, bumping up against. And that's where the interesting piece uh, of the, of the story is. And I don't know what that answer is either. Well, none of us know what the answer is, but maybe you do listeners. So we want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts uh, about Black Lives Matter in general, about the Seattle incident uh, specifically, uh, what you think about what this movement is doing, what it should do better, what it can accomplish, and where it you think it will go from here. Uh, you can send us an email at showaboutrace at gmail.com uh, or send us a voicemail. Uh, just record it on your iPhone, upload it, send it to the same email address, or find us on social media and let us know what you think. You know, I have a question for the audience, for our listeners, and also for you guys. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, Black Lives Matter is still embryonic. I was wondering, you know, I've been reading like some different people's like, you know, propositions and how of how they can coalesce and become a real movement that is everlasting. And one of the things I've been reading that's been sticking out to me in my mind has been the possibility of them becoming lobbyists. Do you think that would work? Well, I th yeah, I think that definitely... And maybe we can get to this in the B side uh, when we yeah. get back to it. Yeah. Is yeah. you know, yeah, you have to be disrupting things in the streets. You also have to be taking your state senator to play golf. Um, I agree with you. All right, so yeah. we'll table that. We'll but uh, remember, we'll bring that back in the B side. Maybe one of our listeners will will take us there. We're going to throw things over to you, Baratunde, to talk about your favorite friends at Uber. Uh, some background back in two thousand nine. This on-demand car service called Uber was founded to make it easy to use a smartphone app to look like a baller uh, and hail a black car from the street, bypassing holding your hand out, trying to get a cab, or booking formally with the service hours, days, even weeks in advance. Six years later, Uber is now in 58 countries, hundreds of cities. Uh, they've raised $6 billion in venture capital, and according to the fake math of venture capital, they're worth $50 billion. It's growing really aggressively, and uh, this company tends to seek forgiveness rather than permission when it enters uh, a new city. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio recently found out you know, how powerful this company is and uh, how good it was at moving more than just people, but also uh, political needles, when he tried to cap the growth of Uber in New York City, citing the impact on traffic, needing further study, and limiting them to kind of like 1% growth which is kind of killing the company. They're, they're moving so much faster than that. So a lot of companies exercise their political muscle through lobbying behind the scenes. You, you fund a campaign, you, you buy a politician, uh, you Donald Trump it, basically. Uh, but Uber you know, has 2 million people in the New York City area and so many more worldwide. They got David Pluff from the Obama campaign on the payroll, and they turned their mobile app into a mobile activism network by getting users to campaign against this progressive New York City mayor, this father of two half-black children, by using race against him and implying that what he was going to do by limiting their growth was limiting job opportunities for black and brown people in this city, flexible work hours, good-paying jobs, uh, and control, uh, entrepreneurial control over your future. 20,000 people wrote in to city officials. The mayor now famously backed down. And uh, there's a lot of questions of economics and political power uh, in this whole mix. This is not just about New York City. Uh, as I mentioned, Uber is global. And the intersection of this new economy company with race is not black and white in, in the literal and figurative sense. There are so many shades of gray. What do you guys think about the kind of the role of Uber in particular as good or not for, for folks of color uh, and not so much just on the, on the de Blasio story, but larger 
what's going on with this company and what's going on with uh, folks of color and their economic prospects and their ability to get cabs? I think as far as the marketing campaign goes, you guys are getting exploited and played and, and, and all the rest of it. You know, as, as was pointed out by many people who've written about it, you know, the smartphone app was, like you said, it's so you could look like a baller and pull up your black car and everything else. The fact that this turned out to be good for some people of color was sort of like a side effect of the program. And now they're latching onto it and they're doing a press conference at Sylvia's. <laughs> well, really? <laughs> eh? um, and making themselves look like the saviors of people of color. I do question, because I have to imagine like all these people in the media black people in the media wrote articles about how Uber has saved them from the racist tyranny of the cab companies. But like here you're talking about, well, if you're a black person with a media platform, then you're probably pretty well off and already, you know, doing okay. I have to imagine, and Baratunde, tell me if this is accurate to your experience. If I'm Baratunde Thurston and I have trouble hailing a cab and I start using Uber all the time, half the time you use the app, you're picking up after a late work meeting in Midtown. You're coming from a friend's dinner in the West Village because you move in those circles. And so you build up your user rating over time. So then when you want to go to Bed-Stuy or Crown Heights, it's like, oh, well, he's got a good user rating. I'll take him. But it's not like Uber is out in East New York and Brownsville working. So for here I, I will uh, I'll have to correct you on that. Wow. Uh, first of all, I, I move in all the circles, Tanner, and, uh, and rarely Midtown. That's a dirty, mm -hmm. filthy just he keeps it high crime area of uh, <laughs> high high financial crime area. I try to avoid those dangerous places. The beauty of, <laughs> of right. Uber's platform, and, and I look, I, I have so many disclaimers on this. I've been using Uber since 2009. I've got hundreds, like multiple hundreds of trips logged. I also did a personal boycott of the service when more of their shadiness started coming out and switched over to Lyft for a very long time, most of the time out here in Los Angeles. Um, and I've t interviewed scores of drivers over the years, if not like maybe up to 200 conversations with drivers about all this. What Uber has shifted into with their Uber X, uh, the same way that a lot of Lyft works, is anybody with a car can become a fair charging transportation option for people. And so where Uber wins over cabs isn't just the professionalism, which is like the, the smoothness of it. You know you're going to get a car at a certain time. You can track it, pay without cash, assuming you have credit which is a big issue with the idea that Uber's going to save all people of color. Only people of color with credit cards or PayPal accounts can really take advantage of this. But the network coverage of Uber is far superior to that of yellow cabs, and the drivers tend to know more than, than other cab drivers. So when you drop that pen and say, come get me, they'll do it. And they'll do it in part because they know you're like a professional passenger. You know, whether or not you travel through Midtown or not, you've got enough savvy to install a smartphone app on your Android or iPhone device. You've got means to pay, which is already clearly covered. So it makes it a cleaner prospect for the driver. Or, and if that driver also lives in that neighborhood, mm -hmm. then they're picking up their people in their hood. And I've had most of the drivers I've ever had have been folks of color, but I've used Uber in scores of cities at this point with all this traveling that I've done. People are covering, because Uber is not a centralized company, it's like whoever has a car and joins the network, that is one of the great benefits. And they don't have to be dispatched by a central authority into an area. So somebody who lives in East New York can pick up you know, from that area. Somebody who lives in South Dallas can pick up people in South Dallas. And that's where they are just categorically better than, than, than the cab company. It's not just because it's me, Baratunde, with a media platform. It's because the operators in that system are also from that from that neighborhood, and they're serving their own people. They're pre pretty much like accidental anti-racists, right? So while it's disingenuous to sell yourself as a proletariat, you know, an answer to the big bad yellow cab, it's definitely not a small business. They, you know, they're disingenuine, disingenuous. You just call it fakeness. <laughs> Disingenuousness. No, anyway, their fakeness has benefited many, many scores of people mm -hmm. of color, right? So I'd say I remember watching uh, Errol Lewis. I would say thousands yeah. upon thousands, yes, because you, uh, I don't know if you saw Errol Lewis on uh, Inside City Hall speaking to the president of the uh, New York ta uh, Taxi and yeah, the Errol Commission. Yeah, Errol is a, a, a black man on, on a local name. New York yeah. TV station who took to task the head of the, the taxi. And a columnist. Yeah, and the thing is, is like he's like, yo, I hear all that. I hear, I hear what you're saying, whatever. But at the end of the day, I just want to get a mm -hmm. ride home. And they're providing a service. And a lot of my friends go through the same thing. A lot of people I know go through the same thing. So at the end of the day, why are you going to put a cap on something that just benefits New Yorkers that you know are basically marginalized anyway because of where they live? 
right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a recent Brookings Institute study found that, you know, one quarter of low and middle skilled jobs are accessible via public transportation within 90 minutes. And Uber has been found to add a reliable and affordable option to the transportation ecosystem for low income neighborhoods. So we'll put it on our show notes. The um, study itself, they're showing that, you know, you wait less time, you pay less money when you live in places that are kind of far away from work when you're living in L.A. And that's helping people actually become more productive and make more money. I mean, maybe it wasn't part of the plan, but it Mm. is helping. When it's a brilliant Uber, I mean, it was a much more political than it was a business set of maneuvers that they've done. And they found the narrative that resonated with so many people who look like me and Raquel, which is. I cannot count the number of times I've been humiliated by a cab driver. And that's not a New York thing. That's a New York, San Francisco, D.C., Detroit, Cincinnati, pretty much everywhere I've been. I've had drivers make up some excuse, lock the doors, speed off with my hand inside the car, like nearly injuring me. And the recourse for that is almost nothing. Who's going to take the time to find the commission, the court? Like there is no true recourse for that level of shameless, highly personal, highly humiliating racism that then ruins the rest of your day to the point where after a cab does something like that to a person like me, we are in line at a coffee shop playing music loudly and a white person turns around and asks us to turn it down and we snap on them. Not because that white person (laughs) was being racist, but because the last one was. Well, because we just were a victim of something else. And so I think by capturing this, it is so cynical and it is so foul in some ways you know for this company which is not built on the backs of justice is built on the backs of making more money but they've hooked into something that's so true and so emotional for so many people that it's like there's no black person i know who has a problem with this they're they're just like yes i hate yellows i love this other option and i don't care if they are exploiting me because i'm getting something out of this you you cap the growth of that you cap the growth of my freedom i'm not down with that it's really amazing yeah right well, here's 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 the one thought. I mean, it, you had a similar situation we have now with all this quote unquote disruption being the word for it. Mm-hmm. Fifteen years ago, in the publishing industry, Barnes and Noble was the big bad yellow taxi company, and everyone hated them, and everyone was fed up with them. And then along came Amazon to say, "We love readers. We love books. We're gonna sell them on the internet, and everyone's gonna you know sponsor the joy of reading." And everyone said, "Yes." Let's let Amazon sell all the books. What could go wrong? <laughs> dun, dun, and so dun. now Amazon and said, so, oh, here we're going to invent this e-reader, and that's going to cut into your margins even more. Yeah. And every year, we're going to hold your feet to the flame. Oh, now we want another nickel on the royalty. Oh, now we want another 10 cents on the royalty. Mm-hmm. Well, now we want another 15 cents on the royalty. Because the purpose of a company, whether it's Uber or Amazon or whatever, is its own bottom line. And the reason why public utilities like transportation and yellow cabs being kind of a privatized public utility that's regulated by the city. And granted, everything about regulating yellow cabs based on New York City is horrible, right? We can say this. Just like you can say so much of the way that public education is handled by current, you know, Department of Education is terrible, but are charter schools the answer, Right. right? Is the privatization of this thing really the long-term answer. And in the long run, you're right. Consumers aren't going to suffer because Amazon consumers don't suffer. Every day, Amazon finds a way to get me my package more quickly. And the little warehouse monkey that has to load it up and pack it and get it to me, every day their labor conditions get worse because they're the ones that are going to get squeezed for the better margins and the lower savings that Amazon passes on to me. And everything that is wonderful about the consumer experiences that you guys are getting yeah, it may be fine for drivers now, but in five years, Uber's going to have a falling margin and not enough growth in the quarter, and they're going to squeeze that driver just a little bit more and squeeze a little more and squeeze a little more and squeeze a little more. So what this new wonderland of black people calling a cab has to be coupled with how is it going to affect traffic? How mm-hmm. is it going to affect labor rights of drivers? And we just have to be conscious of both sides. And I think de Blasio was, you know, A, yeah, probably beholden to the taxi union a little, but... De Blasio was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do here? And Uber totally went race card on him and with this very manipulative and slightly disingenuous and opportunistic campaign and took him to the wall. And you know what's crazy? Remember how they had like this marketing campaign with the charter schools here in New York City? They did. It was the same people. that, that that, That forced de blasio in a way just to drop it to drop the topic altogether they hired you're right the same crew 
to work on the marketing campaign for Uber. Right. And they treat Uber, and I even read it, I think, in Vanity Fair, I, I think it was in Vanity Fair, where um, the president of Uber said that they treat Uber like a political candidate. Mm-hmm. Right. When in all- it's, just, it's just crazy, but at the same time, I know it's cynical, but you know, nothing is black and white. Right. I mean, B- Barnes & Noble is just as much as of, of a bad guy than Amazon is. I mean, right. yeah, well, okay, fine, they're squeezing, like, for example, okay, Amazon's squeezing the labor, right? Right. But look at, I mean... Barnes and Noble looks at everything in a very old, old, old-fashioned way. They ghettoize authors. They, by the way, because uh, Simon and Schuster, my uh, parent company for my book *Bird of Paradise: How I Became Latina*, wouldn't pay a premium for the front of the store. They, two weeks before my book came out, canceled every physical copy of my book, which right. totally freaking killed me. Right? Right. No, they so, were the yellow I cab. Mean, so they are the yellow cap. So at the end of the day, right? There's no borders, really, if you will, on mm-hmm. at you know, on Amazon. I don't feel pun intended. Readers will know what I'm talking about. Um, and 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 right, I prefer Amazon to deal with that than deal with Barnes and Noble. I personally boycott. I personally do not even go in. I don't want to even buy. A, a, I won't even go to Starbucks and talk about race if it's in a star, if it's in is in a Barnes and Noble. Right. But the thing also like Amazon, they oh we're going to self publish all of these authors and you're going to have a platform and we're going to share the revenue with you. And then like last year they liked like eh, well self published authors we're going to start this new plan and you're going to get a little bit less. Justice is hard, y'all. <laughs> justice is really hard and, and, <laughs> and when you find a friend uh, even if it's like a temporarily economically feasible convenient one if it's slightly better than than your last enemy you're like yes this is great uh the the yellow cab situation in many if not all the cities is is terrible it's it's almost monopolistic the economics are really challenging the regulations imperfect and the racism flourishes under a system like that and the, and the class discrimination around not covering certain neighborhoods is terrible. Uber is eventually, you know, going to replace all these human drivers with artificially intelligent machines, and then everybody loses. Like all drivers matter uh, will be the chance in 15 years when it's a bunch of self-driving cars and no humans are compensated for anything. Consumers win. Pro- there's no labor being paid uh, for, for any of that future. stuff, it is. It is, and I, I think that's that's Amazon wow. has already pointed the path toward that. I think you know, Tanner, you're really right to to bring that up. So I'm gonna take this to our listeners uh, and say, you know, what are you thinking about the the trade offs that that come? There's clearly some emotional exploitation uh, going on with suffering uh, with some of these tech driven businesses like Uber and Lyft, and it's, you know, Uber is just the leader in this particular category. But this goes beyond car service and certainly beyond this particular company. Do you feel used? Do you feel abused? Do you think the, that the power that you have to avoid a little bit of racism over here in terms of hailing a car is mitigated by the challenge of labor and coverage requirements and some important regulation that a cab industry uh, has that is not applied to this car service? Send us a message, showaboutrace at gmail.com. You can tweet, Facebook us. We are Show About Race on both those platforms. No black and white here, lots of shades of gray. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Baratunde. Now let's go to Yo. Check this out. Our weekly tips and recommendations. Raquel, what have, uh, what have you been enjoying lately? Well, I wouldn't say enjoying, but I was on my friend Jay Smooth, our, co- our recent guest host, on his uh, Facebook page, and I came across this picture of a woman and her son, and it was so sweet and tender. And when I read what it was about... It really, really took me aback, and I felt moved to actually recommend that we um, support this woman. Her name is, uh, she's a friend and colleague of Jay Smooth. Her name is Rebecca Spiculia, and she lost her 17-year-old son suddenly and violently at the hands of an unknown assailant or assailants on July 28th in Santa Maria, California. Her friends and colleagues at Race Forward have established a fund to show support, sorrow, and love as she deals with this tragic and unspeakable loss. And I would love for you guys, especially, you know, parents, I mean, for me, it really tugged at me. And I, and when somebody loses their son, I feel like I'm losing also a child. We're all losing a child. Our society's losing a child and a contributor. So please consider donating something. The URL is www.youcaring, Y-O-U-C-A-R-I-N-G.com forward slash Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H dash S-P-I-C-U-G-L-I-A dash four zero three five four zero. And um, we're also going to put it on our show notes. So if you didn't catch that, you'll you'll see you'll find a link there. And um, just wanted to we're, we've been infected with colonialism, with rage, with hatred. Why don't we infect ourselves with some caring?
Mr. Thurston. Uh, and if you did catch that URL, you are a cyborg and a f member of the future of the human race because that would be an amazing memory uh, for you to have. Yeah, so th thank you for uh, for sharing that, Raquel, and letting them know it'll be in the show notes. Uh, mine is a, is a somewhat local thing, but it might have some, some national reach, and it's a bit self-promotional. Uh, I'm co-founder of this company called Cultivated Wit. Uh, me and, and two of my former colleagues at The Onion started it, and we do this event series where we bring comedians and designers and software developers together, and they make funny apps on purpose uh, over a weekend and then put them on stage and kind of like a sort of keynote from Steve Jobs with a, a tech product that actually works but is intentionally funny. Uh, an example is you know, someone said, let's make uh, an app called Racebook, which would let you avoid all the awkward race conversations that happen on Facebook after national race-based tragedies happen. Uh, we're doing our next event here in LA, which is part of why I'm out here, Sunday, August 23rd. Go to comedyhackday.org for tickets. We have uh, from Silicon Valley, Kumail Nanjani, as one of our judges from the New York Times, Nick Bilton from Meltdown Comics, Emily Gordon. I'll be emceeing it. It is culturally relevant, uh, technically savvy, and very, very fun. I don't think you will have seen a show like it. And if you can't make that, check out the website anyway. You can see everything that people have built in the past a lot of which has to do uh, with our pre-yet post-racial uh, America and indeed world. So that's my plug for Check This Out. Okay, and I, having finally been able to get away on vacation and read something, uh, plowed my way through a book that was on my stack for a while, Just Mercy, by Brian Stevenson. I'm sure a lot of people have already read it, but if you haven't, move it to the top of your to-do list, read it next, put it ahead of everything else. Um, it is... I'd say the best, certainly one of the best books that's uh, ever been written about our current moment of dealing with mass incarceration. It's specifically about the death penalty, and Brian Stevens is a lawyer in Alabama who uh, worked on behalf of unjustly accused people who were given the death penalty, but also on behalf of people who were guilty but were given, you know, crazily disproportionate crimes uh, that, you know, no one should have had, and it's just an amazing book full of wisdom. Uh, it's not often you can say that, but it is a book that will enlighten you. Cool. Today, our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race, or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. We're now accepting voice memos. We want to hear your feedback and your thoughts on what we discussed today, and then you can check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts as part of the conversation. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Baratunde and Raquel, I'm Tanner Colby, and we won't stop until racism is over.